Our Father in heaven, we call upon you with thankfulness, for you have revealed yourself to be a saving God, a God who meets his people in their need, a God who delivers us from the bondage of sin. Father, today I, I pray for those who are here, whether members or visitors, who are grieving. Certainly there's some who have lost loved ones, others are grieving for other reasons. You know those reasons, and Father, I pray that by your Spirit, you would meet and minister to those who are hurting. Heavenly Father, we also pray that you would be with those who are anxious. Circumstances or events in their lives have made future and direction uncertain to them it is not uncertain to you and so we pray that you will meet them and bring comfort give them peace where they are anxious heavenly father i pray also for those who are struggling with particular sins and to them it seems that again and again all they do is disappoint you but you show yourself to be a god of tender compassion And the sin that resides within us is simply a reminder of the old man who has been put to death. It's a reminder that he is dead and you have raised us with Christ. And Father, I pray that you would teach us to see you as your word tells us you see us. Help us to know you as a father who looks upon your struggling children and has tenderness and compassion on them. Help us to see you as a father who summons us out of slavery, a father who would draw us near through the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, we thank you for the glorious images that you give to us in the scriptures so that when we are doubtful of our salvation, when we're anxious of our status with you, Through Christ, we find a certainty that we would never have alone. And God, as you have called us to live in this fallen world, we pray that you will meet us when that fallen world strikes us with blows that are heavy. And would you lift our heads above that we might know that we are not bound and destined just for the dirt, but we are bound and destined for a city who has foundations whose author and builder is God. Father, we pray for the government, federal, state, and local. We pray for all those who serve, whether elected or appointed to office. We pray, Father, that you would grant to them wisdom to rule with justice and most especially the wisdom to know that they are under your almighty hand. And Father, we pray that you would protect life from conception to the grave, that you would rain down justice in places where there is injustice. And Father, we ask, even as John prayed at the end of the Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we pray now that you would quiet our hearts beneath your word. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll take your Bible, we'll turn to Exodus chapter 4 this morning, Exodus 
4. We're going to read verses 18 through 31 this morning. Uh, last week, the, the, the big theme, the power of God, the, the power of salvation belongs to the Lord. And then we saw these two examples. One, where the power of salvation was revealed in God's works. Remember, Moses grabs a snake very tentatively that was once his staff, and it turns back into his staff. You'll also remember that hand that was made leprous is healed. And then it's through that hesitant Moses who wants to make excuses about his inability to speak that the Lord says, Moses, my power is also revealed through my words. It's not your mouth that'll do it. And so now Moses has agreed to go back to do what the Lord has called him to do. And the emphasis is still the same at the end of chapter 4, God's power. And we're going to see God's power revealed in the staff that Moses carries and also in the son that God carries. We're going to read Exodus 4, verse 18 through 31. And remember, this is God's word. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold... I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a, a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited his people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we, we read in the scriptures so often passages which seem strange to our ears. Uh, you know precisely what's going on here. We just pray for the ministry and the help of your Holy Spirit. So that as we study your word, we might know you as you reveal yourself. Nourish us on your word, who is Christ. And Lord, as you used a crooked stick in the hand of Moses, would you use a sinful crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to the Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. 
We've been through some pretty big events already. In chapter 4, a burning bush, huge miracles, a snake, deliverance from leprosy. And when you read those events, it's tempting to think, okay, now we're on the backside of the climax of the story. Not that there's not more to come, but this feels like a, a slide back into Exodus. Well, there's so many things in this passage that tell us that the Lord is a God who uses small circumstances, small events, in really big, profound ways. I would suggest in the passage that there are three events that seem to us on the surface like kind of small, if not unusual, and maybe gross. And those small events are actually very important. For one, Moses heads back to talk to his father-in-law Jethro. No big deal. After talking to Jethro, God says, go on back to Egypt. For those who sought to kill you, Moses, are dead. But you wonder if this is God's man, if this is the one he's going to use for the coming events, and why does he even need to know that the people who sought to kill him are dead? I mean, surely the Lord's going to protect him, right? Well, then the Lord tells us that there's a staff in Moses' hand, and it seems like a small deal, but it's actually a big event. Next event. God tells Moses to go talk to Pharaoh, but God says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let my people go. And when that happens, you tell him, Israel's my firstborn son. And if he doesn't let my firstborn son go, I'm going to kill his firstborn son. Immediately on the heels of that, in an event that seems incredibly odd to us, we have that story of a firstborn son. Moses' firstborn son, Gershom, who is circumcised along the way, and it somehow seems to pay for and save Moses' life. Is that minor or significant? It's a pretty big deal. Thirdly, the last event of the chapter, Moses and Aaron meet after many years, and they go to meet with the elders and the people of Israel, and the Bible tells us that the people believed and then, in, in fact, they fall down in the sand of Egypt and they worship the Lord. Is that minor? It's very significant. And all of this reminds us that each of us has experienced little small events in our lives that in the moment look to us like very small matters. But the Lord is the God who uses these very small matters in very big ways. So Exodus 4 teaches us, when you bring all of these stories together, this is it. God reveals his power through his firstborn son. And so this morning, we're going to see that power revealed in a hard heart and in a difficult story and then the right response. Start with a hard heart. If you've been living under your father-in-law's care and you've been working for him as your employer and you're summoned to go and do the Lord's work, it's a good idea to go back and have a conversation with him. That's what Moses does, verse 18. It's a summary of the conversation. Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. I wonder if Moses is actually curious about whether the people are dead or alive. I don't think he's curious. I think the Bible is telling us that Moses still identifies with God's people who are suffering back in Egypt. And Moses also identifies and remembers how brutal the conditions were 40 years back. 
But overriding all of this, there's a hint in Moses' heart, a kind of lingering doubt. Is the Lord really calling me to go and do this? That's why I believe the Lord provides a final push. Look at verse 19. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Now, surely for a worried man, that would be a consolation, right? But it is, it is greater than that. This statement serves as a declaration to Moses and to the Hebrew people and to you and I as readers that this is the beginning of the exodus. God's about to do his saving work and bring glory to himself. I'm going to reveal my power. And here it begins. Family loaded on the donkey. They start out to Egypt and the narrator pauses the story to make you look at Moses' hand. The same hand that, that cautiously grabbed a venomous snake. The same hand that was healed from leprosy. Verse 20, Moses took the staff of God in his hand. It seems insignificant. It's big. It's really big because the power and wisdom of God is, is being placed into the hand of God's deliverer. The message, God is going to be with his man along the journey. And what looks like dead wood in the hand of God's man is actually God wielding power through an ordinary vessel, God's power to bring deliverance. Which points us, of course, to the dead wood of the cross, which was placed in the hand of God's own son and wielded in power to bring deliverance to people who were enslaved in sin. And so the staff becomes a kind of picture of the cross. By faith, brothers and sisters, you actually have it better than Moses. When archaeologists seek to find the Ark of the Covenant and seek to find that staff, there's always been a hope that surely if we found that staff, wouldn't that be cool? Like we could wield power? The Bible says you have something greater than the staff implanted in your heart, and it is the cross. And through the work of God's Spirit, that dead wood of the cross has been planted in your heart, and it has sprung to life. And it's the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul loves this image, this concept of the power of the cross. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, to those being saved, the cross is the power of God. Galatians 6, 14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If your heart's tender, I suspect you can see why this matters. Some of you are still struggling under the bondage of, of sin spiritually. In the same way that the Hebrews were struggling under the bondage in Egypt physically. And just as certainly as God's power is being wielded and revealed through this staff, God's power is even now revealed through the cross in your own life. And you might say, well, I don't know if I see the power of the cross today in my life. But here's the beauty of the cross. 
You're not going to misplace it. You're not going to lose it like you would a staff. It's not going to be carried off. The cross has so certainly been planted in your own heart that when you wonder where the power of the Lord is to transform you, you go, oh, the Holy Spirit again is still in me. And the Holy Spirit has planted that dead wood there to remind me that the Christ is no longer longer hanging there. But that having been buried, he is raised and the tomb is empty. Which is really a declaration of victory. Lord, I don't really know where your power is. The tomb's empty. And the cross hangs empty as well because it has been planted and sprung to life in your heart. God, would you reveal your power through that cross and the Spirit ministering to me? So God reveals his power through this firstborn son. Now with staff in hand, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Moses, you do all those Signs in front of the Israelites, you do the exact same signs instead of Pharaoh, in, in front of Pharaoh. Again, my eloquence. I want to remind you as we come to this particular portion that there is a biblical principle that is underlying this. And we're going to deal with that biblical principle before we deal with the common questions that people ask. When you look at signs in the Bible, signs always have a twofold purpose. For those who believe, for those who look to the Lord in faith, signs have the effect of making the tender heart more tender, which is why the Lord's Supper is reserved for God's people, because your hearts are already made tender. And this serves to add greater tenderness and enjoyment of the gospel. But to the hard-hearted, to those who refuse to bow the knee to the Lord, signs have the opposite effect. Signs don't make the hard heart tender, They make the hard heart harder. How come? Because if you really weren't interested in bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, evidence really isn't the issue. Where the heart is hard, there's been no prior working of the Holy Spirit. And God explained to the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 11 and chapter 36 to God's people, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, no one gets a tender heart unless God takes out the heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. Signs basically just tell you where your heart already is. Doesn't mean that the Lord can't or won't change your heart. It means that signs alone won't do it. If a person wants to become spiritually tender to the Lord and, and, and comes to know their need for Christ, it is only because God's Spirit has moved them that way. And so with that biblical principle in place, I think it's important to make sense of the confusing statement of verse 21. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now in the Bible, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is phrased in three different ways. Sometimes it's said that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it is said that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And then other times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now here's a question that modern and postmodern 
readers are asking when they come to this passage. If God hardens Pharaoh's heart, then how can God hold Pharaoh responsible for rejecting God? I was reading an old Hebrew scholar who wrote on the book of Exodus entirely from a a Jewish perspective. And he made a point that I think is really important. He observes that modern readers bring to this particular passage, in fact, to all of the Old Testament, questions that the original readers were not asking. And the reason we bring those questions to the text is because we bring to us these philosophical presuppositions that are, that are fed and woven into us through Greek philosophy that influences everything about the way you were taught and the way you were learning. You and I are coming to a passage like this and we, we ask a cause and effect question. Does Pharaoh have free will or not? But that's not what the readers were asking. That might be what you and I want to ask. The Bible is making a really simple statement. Pharaoh's heart was hard towards God's word. And God, being powerful and sovereign over all things, reigns even over the unregenerate, hard king of Egypt. And God is so powerful that when he reigns over this hard-hearted king, he's going to get glory for it. Back to the biblical principle. Pharaoh and Herod. Hitler and Stalin. You and me. We're all born with hard hearts. That's what the Bible teaches. Because your bent from birth is sin, and none of us had what you and I call free will. A truly free will would have had the the ability, the capacity to choose evil or to choose good. But the doctrine of original sin, which supposedly all Christians believe, says that you were so enslaved by Adam's sin that you were only choosing evil all the time. Your will wasn't free at all. Now, Romans chapter 9, verse 15 to 23, Paul explains the concept that I'm talking about. And that is that God has the right, because he is God, to soften some hearts by extending mercy. Meaning he can give to that heart grace and mercy that they really didn't deserve. But God has the right, because he's God, to get glory in the other direction as well. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart works like this. God allowed Pharaoh to remain in the condition he was from birth. God chose not to take out his heart of stone and give him a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit didn't save him from himself. And the net result, when left to ourselves, is that rebellion and sin has an ongoing hardening effect. So that the unregenerate Pharaoh becomes increasingly rebellious, increasingly stubborn and refusing to follow the Lord. How does any of this glorify God? Romans 9 gives us the answer. It says, because God is the potter and you and I are the clay. Most of us go, no, 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 I'm the potter. I'm going to make of myself what I want to be. The Bible says no. More than that, this magnifies the glory and the splendor and steadfast love of God for having shown mercy and grace to people like us. 
He could have left me in my hard-hearted condition. How kind of him. I didn't choose him. He, in his steadfast love and kindness, chose to take out my heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And all along, I thought I was choosing him. All along, he made the first move because he's the one who's rich in mercy. He's the one who's gracious and compassionate to me. God reveals his power through his firstborn son. and So you see this power in the hard heart. You also see it in a difficult story. Now, the reason that God hardened Pharaoh's heart was to magnify his love for his specific children. Look at verse 22 and 23. God said, Moses, you say this to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, one pastor said that this is a showdown over the issue of ownership. Pharaoh believes that the Hebrew people belong to him. Therefore, as his possession, he has the right to have them serve him. But God says, no, these people belong to me. And for me, says God, ownership is always a matter of life and death. Next, we encounter what at first blush seems like a difficult, if not embarrassing, part of the story. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Put who to death? Put Moses to death. On his way back to Egypt, the Lord sought to confront Moses over the issue of ownership. Circumcision was a sacrament, a sign of God's ownership over his people. God told Abraham, Genesis chapter 17, the promise is for you and to your children and your children's children that I will be a God forever to you. But you, you are my people. Wear this covenant sign, the relational sign of my ownership. In that way, Your obedience is a declaration of submission to my reign. Circumcision is to them what infant baptism is to us. It's a parent's declaration that this child belongs to God. It's an outward sign. That God will be a God to this one. And we, by faith, under the reign of Jesus, are submitting to him. And we're saying, I'll bring this little one up under the reign of Christ. And it's our hope that this child will grow to enjoy the blessings of obedience and submission to the reign of King Jesus, the symbol which is being offered to them. Moses lived in Pharaoh's house for 38 years, and then he lived in Midian for 40 years. And so before God has a showdown with Pharaoh over the issue of ownership, he must first have a showdown with Moses. The issue is ownership. You see, Moses knew the promise. He knew the sign. For some reason, he had not circumcised his son Gershom. And if circumcision meant to be a declaration of submission to God's reign, 
then Moses' refusal to circumcise Gershom was what one pastor called a declaration of independence. How can Moses go press the issue of ownership with Pharaoh if he has not settled the issue in his own heart? How odd. How plain the illustration. For as long as Gershom has lived, Moses has refused to submit to the Lord. He's refused to settle the issue of ownership in his own heart. He's refused to say, God, I belong to you, and I will submit to you in every corner of my life. He's refused to say, Lord, you reign over me. You reign over every part of my household, which serves as a kind of warning to us. When it comes to the Lord and his servants, the issue is ownership, submission to the reign of Christ, which makes me wonder as a pastor if there aren't places in your own life where you've quietly made a little declaration of independence from the Lord. Lord, I'm not not really going to listen to you about the Sabbath. I'm not going to surrender my kids' youth sports to you. I mean, my kids are really good. I'm not going to be able to sacrifice a day of work. I'm not going to sacrifice a day of play just because it's Sunday. When it comes to the issue of the the Sabbath, how many of us need to probably settle the issue of ownership in our own hearts? For what you do with the Sabbath tells you something about the condition of your heart. I suspect there's other places where you might say, Lord, I've declared independence from you over that issue of bitterness. I'm not going to let it go. I'm going to need to hang on to this because I, I, would, I would lose power if I released my anger. I'm going to ride this a little bit longer. Yes, God, you're God. But that particular secret sin, I don't hate it. In fact, I, I love it. And I'm not prepared to, to settle the matter of ownership in that space. Maybe somewhere else. God sought to put Moses to death. It's more than an illustration. It's a warning. And the warning is this. The Lord is willing to press the issue into your heart until you're willing to say, Okay, Lord, that area too comes under your reign. I belong to you. I'll submit even there. While Moses languishes near death, his wife seems to understand the issue. Makes you wonder if they've talked about this before. And she knew that Moses just wasn't going to circumcise his son. And in what amounts to an awkward and gruesome and bloody scene, Zipporah circumcises her son. And she touches the feet of her dying husband. You're a bridegroom of blood to me. 
And in what seems at first blush to be an odd, disconnected, irrelevant story, you should listen to the parable and the sermon that the gruesome story teaches. It's not a parable in that it's fictitious. It's a true story. It's a parable because it's teaching you something profound when it comes to the ownership of God's sons and daughters. For God, it's always a matter of life and death. God disciplined his servant Moses in order to settle the matter of ownership in Moses' heart. But then God disciplined his greater servant, Jesus, in order to settle the matter of ownership permanently for you. With Pharaoh in bondage, God says, you let my firstborn son go or I'll kill your firstborn son. You see what he's saying? One of us is going to give up a firstborn son so that my children will be free to serve me. It's not an accident. It's an arrow pointing us when the very next verses tell us about a firstborn son who is cut and bleeds to pay for the sins of God's servant so that that servant might be spared to live and serve God. The message, God's adopted children were made to serve him. Satan said, I will not let them go. And God said, in order to satisfy the ransom price of my slave children, a firstborn son has to die. It'll be mine. My own firstborn son must bleed to free God's children from slavery to sin and settle the matter of ownership once and for all. Isaiah 53. God's suffering servant, the Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You've been adopted into God's family so that you would be set free to serve him. God reveals his power through his firstborn son. A hard heart and a difficult story, but we're going to close with the right response. God told Aaron to go into the wilderness, go meet your brother. And it was the Lord's providence that they met together back on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, which is the mountain where the Lord had spoken in the burning bush. And the two of them went after that and met with the elders of Israel. Verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that they had seen, he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The original language, Hebrew scholars notice, is, is full of, a, of kind of a numerical system which displays a complex answer to a, the biggest concerns that any reader would have in this particular passage. Would God overcome the mouth problems of this man or the heart problems of Moses? 
Verse 30, Aaron spoke all that the Lord had spoken. And and now you have signs to accompany those words. Number two, will the people actually believe when Moses goes to speak? And it says in verse 31, the people believed. What do you know? Just as God said. Three, would God truly see their affliction? Would he visit his people with a deliverer? Verse 31, the Lord had visited his people and seen their affliction. That's a God who is faithful to his word. And he keeps his promises and he reveals his power. What is the right response to a compassionate, faithful, powerful God? Verse 31, they bowed their heads and worshiped. God's firstborn son, about to be delivered from slavery, falls down on his knees in the sands of Egypt and worships a God worthy of worship. It was a right response. It's the only response, isn't it, to a God of mercy and grace? But you know, like I do, the rest of this story, it's a little bit of an anomaly. And what I mean is this, Israel does not always rightly bow the knee and worship the one true God. God tells us the rest of this story in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And the more they were called, the more they went astray. And they kept sacrificing to the Baals. And they kept burning offerings to idols. Israel was a very unfaithful son. Like you and me. That's the story of the Old Testament. God made promises to give offspring and descendants. And here we are 400 years later with millions of offspring. But none of them are permanently faithful. How's God ever going to get unfaithful sons and daughters to serve him? Salvation was never a deal between God and sinners. Just as God delivered his firstborn son Israel through the mediator Moses, for you in your spiritual bondage, there had to be a better mediator There had to be a true and faithful son where Israel was unfaithful. Jesus was fully and completely faithful. You remember he comes out of the water and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You don't get salvation, friends, by being good enough to earn God's favor. You get salvation by embracing God's true and only faithful son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament sees the birth of Jesus as kind of a a new flight out of Egypt, a new full and final exodus, which is why Matthew chapter 2 verse 15 quotes Hosea 11 verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son, Jesus, the true Israel. God's firstborn and always faithful son. In the new Exodus, by faith, 
Jesus Christ, God's faithful son, makes you and I adopted into God's family so that we really can be sons and daughters of the living and true God. God reveals his power through his firstborn son. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bind the words of this text and the words of your spirit to our heart that we might know you as you are revealed in the scriptures and we might rest upon the Lord Jesus, your true and faithful son, in whose name we pray, amen.